Welcome to the Cracked Teacups Podcast. I am your host, Christy Bradley. In this episode, we have an interview with Freedom James. Uh, I first met James through uh, a common friend, uh, Papa Rick of TikTok, who has adopted me as family. And James is another one of his adopted stray humans. Uh, We sat down on Christmas Eve and had uh, an amazing interview. Um, James is a very colorful character. Uh, to put his, um, you know, simple thing. Um, he has many shades to himself. He produces content on TikTok, and you're never quite sure which side of James you're going to see in any given video. And he has such a bright sense of humor, um, such a hopeful outlook, and so much humor and fun. Um, James is also going through a transition in his life, um, losing his vision. And so he is learning a new way of living, but he's bringing a lot of his old self and finding a lot of his new self along the way. And the story that he has, uh, begins with, um, a very scary tale of childhood essay and drug addiction. But as you listen to his story, you will find such a hopefulness, um, a a willingness to help his fellow man, and a really bright outlook for his future. So here is his interview, Freedom James. So James, how would you like to introduce yourself? Well, uh, my name is James. Um, uh, I am well, formerly known as Freedom James, which that's kind of um, an interesting story. But um, yeah, that's kind of what I was known by mostly. What's the story of Freedom James? Uh, well, Freedom James was a name that was given to me by the Hopi Indian tribe um, at a rainbow gathering. Mm-hmm. And so uh, an elder, um, an elder Hopi, during the prayer circle, uh, it was my first rainbow gathering, and I was just sitting in the circle, and he focused in on me, and he walked up to me with uh, the eagle feather, and he did a sage cleansing and did all kinds of, like, he was speaking Hopi, which I didn't understand any of it, but he did a Hopi prayer and everything, and he said, brother, you're a rainbow warrior. Do you know that? And I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> I was very shy about it. I was like, no. Um, um, he said, your name is Freedom. And he said, what is your, what is your, your, your given name? I said, it's James. He said, from now on, you will be known as the Rainbow Warrior Freedom James. That's really cool. And so that's, that's how it came about. And so, yeah. And it was my first Rainbow, Rainbow Gathering. And what the Rainbow gathering, Gatherings are, there's a, it's based on, um, the Hopi prophecy mm-hmm. um, about the end of times, the end of days, when uh, they predicted that at the end of days, uh, well, this time around, because they do believe that we've had many times, like I think coming up on the fifth or sixth, I'm not sure, um, extinction. So that this, we have actually been, this planet has been, the surface life has been wiped off. Um, whether it's flood, like the great stories, the flood stories, um, other ones, uh, 
there's many, many more, but they do believe that um, the uh, sky people uh, come and guide them and then help them back and they become the protectors of the planet and they reseed, regrow and restart life again. And the Rainbow Warriors, basically, it predicts that at the end of days, people of all walks of life, people from all races, all creeds, all religions, all professions, people from all over the world will just magically start gathering um, once a year, which has happened. It's already, the, it, 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 the, the prophecy has been fulfilled. It's been happening now since... Um, the late 60s, early 70s, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just kind of like evolved into this this national gathering. And um, every year during the week of the 1st through the 7th of July, the, the Rainbow Gatherings become the world's largest growing city. And anything you pack in, you pack out. It's, it's, there's no money allowed. Everything is done on barter. Um, and then on the 4th, um, you know, at midnight, the 4th, it becomes the day of silence until noon the next day. And that's when the, the prayer circle is where I got my name. Mm -hmm. And so um, uh, you'll see, I mean, I've been in prayer circles of up to 50,000 people all holding hands in a, in a circle and holding the silence for a good 10 to 15 minutes and the, the energy and the power Oh, <laughs> I'm getting emotional thinking about it. But um, mm -hmm. yeah, the energy and the power from it is, it can bring you to your knees and you can feel it surge around because um, the energy, you know, the way it flows, um, and this is throughout a lot of different religions, different things. Like if you ever notice the Buddha, as he sits, um, there will be the left hand facing up, and the right hand out, so he's receiving the energy in his left hand and sending it in his right hand. So when you're holding hands in that circle, you're doing the same thing. So the energy is flowing in a counterclockwise, um, and um, you can literally feel it come around from hand to hand. Yeah, yeah, you can feel it come around, even in fifty thousand people, and it's like it's like a, it's like a wave at a stadium, but it's just pure love, and. Um, that's why it makes me emotional thinking about it. Because, I mean, you're there with people from all walks of life. All, all peoples. All, I mean, gay, straight, um, black, white, red, yellow, brown. There'll be Krishnas there. There'll be, um, I mean, all walks of life and all religions. And, and, and it's a place where all of that is left outside. And um, there's nobody in charge. There's no hierarchy there's no it's it's it just happens mm -hmm. and like if you see something that needs to be done you do it or you know if you um you volunteer it takes it takes a village it takes a village to raise you know and, and speaking of which there's a there's kid friendly villages there's kid village um and there's different camps there's different villages and different camps that are you know specific to that tribe or that group like the radical fairies that's the um, LGBTQ. Um, there's women's camps exclusively for just women. And they don't have to be, I mean, just women. Mm -hmm. There's no label to that. It's just women. There's a men's camp. where and, and each of these camps and places has different workshops 
you can go every day down to the main meadow where the prayer circle is, and there'll be listings of different classes you can take, different um, um, different therapies, different different things you can do. You know, and it's all pretty much holistic. Um, it's 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 a very healing and wonderful place for me. I haven't been in a while because mm. of my eyes, and if we can get into that, um, <coughs> if Sorry. you if you like, like it, um, I was diagnosed with advanced stage glaucoma ten years ago, and I have lost my eyesight, all of it except one percent in one eye. So in my left eye, I have just so if you can imagine looking through a stir stick, it's not even a drinking straw anymore. It's gotten so small. It's just like a stir stick for your coffee. Um, that's what I see now. How has your life changed? Has your vision diminished? Um, well, it's kind of funny. Um, I've lost my independence quite a bit. Um, and I've had no training. I've had no, I've had to do this all on my own. Um, so, I still own the name Freedom mm -hmm. because because your independence is still right, not, very much in your heart, and I refuse to let it uh, take that away from me. Take your time. Uh, yeah, and it it, it is hard. Um, but I've always been independent. I've always been, I mean, even as a child, like I, I didn't grow up in the best of situations as, as a lot of us, you know, Gen X people, we were we kind of raised ourselves, but I raised myself completely. I had an older brother and sister who were four and five years older. Mm -hmm. And um, so the, I was like the only child. Um, they were in school by the time I, my earliest memories came about. And um, my mother was an artist. She um, is very eccentric. She's very, um, I, I, I would, never been diagnosed, but I would diagnose her as a narcissist, also mm -hmm. bipolar, possibly a sociopath. Um, so I mean, my earliest memories were uh, a place in the hallway of, of, a, of a, a house that my father had built. My father was a, a builder of things. And um, uh, he, he worked at the time. He had a full-time full night gig at General Dynamics in, in Fort Worth, Texas. Um, and so um, he worked nights. And so he slept during the days. And there were two two sections to the house pretty much their side and then the kids side and there was a long hallway and the kitchen and the living room kind of separated the those two wings and then the front door was the living room out so i i would have to literally sit in the hallway with my back against the wall and not move from the time i got up it was sit there don't move don't make a sound if you interrupt me while i'm painting I mean, it was like she turned into this, like, um, it was scary. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I literally seen my mom pull her own hair out 
having tantrums and freaking out like handfuls of it just and shaking violently like it, it was um linda blair <laughs> <laughs> it was pretty frightening you know mm -hmm. i mean i can talk about it and um i mean i've gone through therapy my whole life so um you know it's like it's easier for me to talk about other people get um a little bit like ooh, you know like and, and with me um i consider myself not just a trauma survivor but a triumpher mm -hmm. because i did so much I, I tried so many different things until i found the, the right thing but back to my freedom um as soon as i learned that i could scoot an inch without her noticing i would scoot an inch closer and closer and closer to the door that led to the living room that eventually went to the front door and i'm talking like four years old i remember um, before school, maybe even three and a half, four, my earliest memories are, are scooting to get close to that. And then once I got close enough that I knew she couldn't catch me, I was on my feet and out through the living room and I hit that front door and bam, I was out and I would just run. You're gone. And I was gone. And I wouldn't return until either my brother or sister or my dad came home or got up to go to work, mm -hmm. you know, and, um, so I was safe because I knew that she wouldn't um, do anything with other people around, mm -hmm. um, especially my dad. My, um, my father had no idea that my mom was like this. Um, my brother and sister, like the first time I, I remember seeing her like freak out and have a, like a, a Joan Crawford moment. <laughs> uh, I went running out of the house screaming, help, help, help. And I remember my sister grabbing me and covering my mouth and pulling me back in and saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody. Um, they'll take us all away. Mm -hmm. Which, um, it, you know, it turns out it, they were the Bobsy twins, my brother and sister, I call them. Um, they were worried about being separated. They didn't give a rat's ass about me because I was, you know, they threw me to the wolves. I, I, mean, I, became, I became known as... The, the the troublemaker and the the truth of it is is I never the scapegoat yeah I, I took on that role um, just to keep the family unit together you know everybody has their place you know but the truth is is they were the ones doing it all and pointing the finger at me and if I tried to like say no I did it was worse so I just accepted it and, and would just say like yeah I did it um, mm -hmm. which that you know. Um, I mean, I, I even had the T-shirt. It said, "Here comes trouble." I don't know if you remember. Remember <laughs> yeah. those from the yeah? It was around the same. I remember my brother had one that said "Super Turkey," so that gives you a time frame. <laughs> yeah, and and I actually knew what you meant by the Bobsy Twins too. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. I read those books when oh, I was I, a kid. I, yeah, I love those books. Those and um, I think I've read every single Nancy Drew. <laughs> yeah, I read every one of those. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I, I think I had all the Hardy Boys. I even had all the the um. Partridge Family. The Partridge Family had a book series too. Like they were done like that, like mystery books from the Partridge Family. I didn't know about those. Oh yeah, yeah. In fact, I took one to. Um, you know, years later, I, I went from Texas to Oklahoma and then to California. But years later in California, um, Danny Bonaduce was working at Sushi on Sunset, and I took one of my Partridge Family books there to have him sign it. <laughs> <laughs> Embarrassed him. It was kind of. You know, early 80s. Mm -hmm. 
And it was really funny. <laughs> my my daddy bought a Gucci story. That's it. I, he did sign it. Um, I have two stories about those families from the 70s, the Brady Bunch mm-hmm. and the Parker family. That was the Parker family one. The Brady Bunch one was interesting. Florence Henderson was dating a neighbor's son down the street from us in California. And so she would be, and he was much younger. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> right. He was in his 30s, and she was well in her 50s at the time, maybe even close to 60. But um, I begged my parents. My parents were invited down to um, the, the neighbor's house. Uh, Peggy, and I don't know, she was a strange woman. She had owls all over her house. She loved owls, and it really freaked me out. She kind of looked <laughs> like Morticia, and she was a night owl, too, which... And he was our pool man, which was really weird. Um, but he was all tan and she was so pale. But And then their son was dating Florence Henderson. Go figure. <laughs> but so I asked to go and they said no. Because I think, you know, at the time I probably had blue hair or spiked hair or super blue <laughs> hair or, you know, there was, who knows. Mm-hmm. But um, they were kind of embarrassed to go anywhere with me at that time. And uh, so I waited for them to go down there. And uh, I, I decided I'm going to go and I'm just going to knock on it like it's some emergency or something like there's a leak or something <laughs> <laughs> just to get in the door, just to like. And what I did was I brought a bottle of Wesson oil and I had her sign the bottle of Wesson oil. And um, she actually said, that's just the first time anybody's ever asked me to sign a Wesson oil bottle. I'll remember this forever. <laughs> Which was really cool. Yeah. Unfortunately, like uh, that's no longer exists. In fact, I had her sign it with a like a permanent marker, but the oil, like, because we I was still using, <laughs> you know, I think I took it with me when I moved out, um, and so we were poor punk rock kids like living in Hollywood, and I was using it, and um, it dripped out the side, and so it turned into, like, I like to do the Lucy thing, <laughs> if you know the reference of William Holden. I love Lucy when she jumped to Spence and had him sign a grapefruit. By the time she got it home to New York City, it had wilted and it said, <laughs> <laughs> So that's what the, yeah, the reference was. So, what were you doing in LA? Um, well, let's see. I, well, that's, that's, wow, you just opened a whole book of wildness. Um, so, from, from Texas, we moved to Oklahoma where my, my dad was. And we were only there a few years because my sister was at the age where she was, um, and there was a teenage pregnancy and it just, it completely just like floored my dad. It, it, it cause it was, it was my heritage, the town that um, my great, great grandfather pretty much started. Um, and then like my grand, my great grandfather was born on this land where we moved to my grandfather was born on this land my dad was born on this land so it was very sacred to him and it was you know it was it was he had come home with his beautiful family and we were a beautiful family we were from the outside looking in we were we were just the perfect family you know mm-hmm. we had all the toys we had the, the dirt bikes and you know the 70s dirt bikes we had the motorhome we had the two-story house the big you know on acreage and it was you know um it was, it all looked, you know, perfect, but as most of those families are, it's never perfect. So my sister ended up getting pregnant, which disgraced my dad. Um, and so he, 
he moved us to California. But it all coincided with the same time. I had won a talent show, a statewide talent show in, in Oklahoma. It was a, a 4-H, which is, I don't remember what the H's are for, but it's, it's a thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. You're familiar? Yeah. I'm familiar, okay. yes. So if you're from rural communities, you would know. <laughs> um, so it was uh, the state, and I ended up winning it. And just a weird coincidence, my father had gone to school with Rue McClanahan, and her son was around my age. He was also in the talent show. But after the show, they saw each other, and I guess they went to prom together or something. They dated. And um, um, so she, when I come walking up to him or whatever, she was like, oh, this is yours. This is long before, like, Golden Girls or I think she was still doing stage stage stuff, you know. I don't mm-hmm. think she may have like. Um, I think actually it was even before Mod. I think it was right around that time when she she got on Mod, um, and I think that was her big break. But um, she had already had an agent out, out in California anyway, so she goes up with her agent for me, and so it, it all just kind of worked out, you know, to where when we moved out there, I was kind of thrown into the whole like pushing me for um all the all the auditions and, and everything and um so it started out that way and i did land a few you know smaller things i auditioned for the new mickey mouse club which was the one that had like the members of facts of life later on like mm-hmm. um blair from from that one uh, another texan um I can't remember her name now, but anyway, yeah. So it was that cast, and um, I made it through the last round. So it was just one more where I would actually had to meet with um, Walt's brother, and because he was still, it was still that then. Um, it wasn't Michael Eisner or any of those other things. It was you know still the Disney company, um, or corporation. I can't. But anyway, so um, and then I broke both arms which disqualified my, because they were going to start the taping. And um, so I, I missed out on that one. I, I probably would have gotten through, I think. I mean, I, I was pretty much a shoo-in. Um, they, they, I mean, it felt like it, and we just knew it was going to happen, you know. And I was so excited because I'd grown up watching Annette Brunicello and, all, you know, mm-hmm. the old Mickey Mouse the club, Like, oh, Spin and Marty, all of it, you know, like, yeah, <laughs> I'm that old. But so, yeah, um, so I started seventh grade out there, and um, uh, it was around the same time, like, roller disco was big, and so, you know, the tennis shoe roller skates, and that's why I started skating everywhere, and um, from coming from, like, Podunk, part of the world, to, the, to Orange County, you know, like, right smack dab in the middle of it, you know, like, we could watch the fireworks from Disneyland every night at 9.30 outside without even, like... That's cool. Yeah. I mean, every night it was like, boom. It became so boring. Now I don't care about 4th of July because it's like, eh. <laughs> you know, every night. Can't compare. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and um, But something odd happened. And um, uh, I attracted the attention of an unwanted um, admirer, which... Uh, is is something that changed the trajectory of my life completely forever and um 
it was pretty horrendous. Horrendous. Uh, I remember I was in class, and uh, this is another interesting story, celebrity story. My life is full of these weird, like, like it just happens. I don't know what. But my um, seventh grade social sciences or social studies teacher uh, went to both of her proms with Steve Martin, like mm -hmm. comedian, banjo player. And uh, so that was interesting. But I was in her class, and I hear, um, I'm just going to use my uh, first name, but mm -hmm. James, could you please come to the uh, office? And of course, you know, back then it was like, everyone's like, ooh, busted. I think like last times at Ridgemont's High had just come out, like maybe, you know, mm -hmm. or you know, it was that time period, you know, everybody was like stoners and I mean, people with the Led Zeppelin t-shirts and, you know, punk rock hadn't really come out yet, which, I mean, it was, it, it had, but I think it was still like the Sex Pistols and stuff like that, but so everyone's like, ooh, busted. And here I am like this, like perfect kid. You know, at least that's the image I had there, you know, and I was keeping that, you know, like my grade point was like 4.0. Everything was like never miss a day of school, always just, you know, active and everything and, and, and still trying to, to go into auditions constantly and, and like doing, you know, and um, well, I got to the office and I remember the secretary said here and she handed me an, a, a letter. And it was addressed to me. I had no return. Um, it just said, your friends from Oklahoma. I said the town, but um, so I was like, that's weird. And uh, I was like, oh. She said, normally we're not supposed to give this to you, but I'm going to give it to you this one time. Tell your friends not to send you letters at your school. Mm -hmm. Okay, fine. So I was walking across the quad back to class and I thought I'll just open it you know so I open it the first thing I see when I open it is hair on a photograph and so I pull that out first and there was a letter also in there but I pull that out and I flip it over and it's a picture of me in my bed with a strange man with his face next to me with a flashlight, like, and I looked at the hair, and then I realized, like, because I, I, like, and this was like a week before that this happened, um, but apparently this man had seen me roller skating, um, and had just started stalking me, mm -hmm. and this is before stalking laws or anything like that, I mean, it was way back, 78, 77, and, um, 77, 78. Wow. So, um, yeah, he had he had actually like stalked me for like a year, and he was going as far as taking our trash when we'd put it off the curb. Mm -hmm. He would come by in the middle of the night, scoop it up, take it home to his garage, go through it piece by piece. Um, he had an entire extra bedroom. That's I mean, it was very like. Silence of the Lambs, scary when I did finally see it, but um, it was just like a, a collage of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pictures of me, like, um, and uh, 
But basically what, what had happened, what had happened was <laughs> he um, in the letter said, you're going to meet me today after school or, and then there was a, a list of things that he would have done that um, it was, it was a blackmail situation type thing. Mm -hmm. Because at that time I had done a few things that I wasn't proud of. Um, and because I was following you, he, he, he filmed it all. And so he had it on film. And one of those pictures was in there also. And um, it was a different time then. You know, it was during the, the sexual revolution. It was before AIDS, HIV. Um, and I was, uh, you know, pubescent. And so I was exploring and experimenting. And, and at that time, it was everywhere. Like, I mean, I, the beaches, everywhere, you know, like, and it was a free thing. It wasn't like it is now. There was no, it was almost like stigma free, almost, you know, it was, mm -hmm. it was very open. So, um, the world was safe and freedom was allowable. It seemed and like just it. It seemed like to me. Um, although, you know, I did lose my innocence and my childhood in a second that day. Yeah. Um, I remember the blood draining from my whole body and I just remember shutting down. I don't remember much else from that day. Um, I mean, I do now. I didn't for many years until I, through therapy, I, I went back and, and explored the trauma. And I used um, a type of therapy where you watch a light and you relive the traumas. And basically, it's rewiring your brain. I, 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 could, I don't remember the exact uh, name of this therapy, but it's wonderful if, you have, if anybody who's experienced any kind of traumas and has PTSD, it's, it's, it is not only just, I call it a cure. Mm-hmm. I really do because, um, well, I'll just jump forward because this is going to make the, I'll jump forward past the traumas and everything. Um, the, the whole thing, it lasted three years. Um, I ended up meeting him that day. He took me to his house. He kept me. He made me write a letter saying that I'd run away from home, which was weird that my parents would believe that, but mm -hmm. they bought it hook, line and sinker, I guess. Um, and a lot of other things going on with my sister and, um, my brother was going off to the army. This is a bunch of stuff was going on. And um, so they were becoming empty nesters and I was being ignored anyway, um, pretty much. So I had, I, I had free range. So, you know, it was like, oh yeah, it kind of like, like I said, Gen X, we were just kind of like the shadow generation. We were there, but nobody seemed to notice. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And so, um, that's was, why they call us Generation X. No one knew what we were. Yeah. And, and like, I pretty much could do anything. Um, I could come and go anytime I wanted, you know. But, but this man ended up, um, like, I've never done a drug in my life. And this man ended up keeping me. And it, he was so good at this, I didn't even realize what was going on. But he was injecting me in my buttocks with um, heroin. Mm-hmm. And so, and this is, you know, I've learned recently, I've not recently, but I learned that this is a, a control mechanism for a lot of, even, even, you know, just people, you know, let alone pedophiles. But um, he was um, an evil, evil man, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know. Um, anyway, it all come down to, like, that lasted three years. Um, after, when he did let, let me go after, like, the... the three and a half, almost four weeks. I remember him saying, I'll see you later. 
And um, I thought, yeah, yeah, you will. Like, you're stupid. And I thought I was playing it. I thought I was playing like I'd done everything right. And I, you know, I just remember when that garage came up and we drove into it and then the garage shut. All I could think of was after school special. Okay, this is how it ends. And um, But then when that door opened and I was released, I thought, you're crazy. I'll never be back. Mm-hmm. The sickness kicked in. I was back that next morning. And so I would go back every morning, every afternoon, and then every night before, you know, I had to be home. I mean, I had three times, at, you know, and this was in seventh and eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So it was very young. And then in ninth grade, it all ended with a big to-do with um, police helicopters, my dad with a, a weapon, uh, the 22, the Garden Grove freeway shut down, lasting hours with bullhorns, my mom pleading, don't do it, don't do it. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. made the news. It was a big, like, what the hell, you know, like, and um, uh, car chase, the whole bit, you know, like, um, and it, that's how it ended because he was caught. Um, that, that is how it ended, but there was no justice. And that's, you know, my biggest regret is that I was too afraid to face him in court and to point a finger and say, this is what happened. So basically all the thing he was convicted of was, um, trespassing and it was a citizen's arrest. My, 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 they allowed my father to do, um, they didn't charge my dad with anything, which was really good, you know, at that time, like, cause he could have easily like, I mean, and he had to be talked down from actually ending this man's life mm-hmm. but um so it was traumatic for the whole family not just me you know it turned into a big like well um which changed everything once it was outed it changed everything like like at this time christmas time um since it's christmas now i remember going to my aunt and uncles or just my grandparents or stuff and it was anytime i walked into a room it was like they didn't treat me the same Nobody treated me the same. It was very strange. Like there was a, uh, like a. You weren't the same person to them. No. Yeah. I was, I was, I was totally like ruined or like, and then, you know, um, of course when he was, when the man was like, when they did take him away, he he was kept in. So, uh, I had to admit then that I was addicted, which, you know, of course that got thrown back on me. Like it was me that had done it and that I was, you know, I tried to pull it off that I had mono at first and um, they took me to the doctor and they did, they did um, cultures and then they did blood work and they found out, I think that's how it came about. They, they discovered that my um, opiate levels were like through the roof. Mm-hmm. Like he doesn't have mono, he's, he's a full blown opiate addict. <laughs> yeah. At, you know, at 15, what it was then. But it would, it, you know, it would have ended anyway because I would have aged out um, at fifteen. This this particular person had a a window of of young boys that he liked between the ages of twelve and fifteen, which you know I would have gotten kicked to the curb anyway. And um, but it still, it, it changed. Like like I said, it changed the trajectory of my life. I ended up I'm not never feeling safe again in that house or in that area, and so I I legit started running away. And I did, and I ended up leaving my parents at a very early age, at 15, and making it on my own. Mm-hmm. And I never went back, you know? I just never, I never, I was always independent. And, and at, at that point, when you left as this very, very young person, mm-hmm. having already at that age gone through 
this experience. Um, what was your intention for um, your life at that point? Who did you want to be at that point? I just wanted to make it until I was 16. Um, and at that time, the streets of Hollywood, and that's where I went. I went to Hollywood. It was not the Disneyfied Hollywood of today. It was a very different place. It was very seedy. It was very, it was the very end of that time. So it was at its worst. I mean, Hollywood Boulevard was a, a cesspool. Um, downtown Los Angeles, you didn't go because it was too dangerous. It wasn't open to the public. Like there was no businesses or anything. They were literally had corrugated metal two stories up. And um, it was, it was, you know, I, I don't know if you ever saw the film Adventures in Babysitting. I think so, yeah. <laughs> okay. Remember when they went downtown? And that's that's about how it was then. You know, it was very much exactly like that. It was like, ooh. Um, but that's where all the squats were. And that's, you know, because you would be taken advantage of completely if you stayed in the Hollywood area. So those of us who had enough brains, and it was those punkers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love that term, punker. Um, <laughs> it's like, what? Sounds like you're going after, like, yes, I like fireworks for a living <laughs> but um yeah so um i got in with the art crowd downtown but i see i've lost where i was going with all of it uh, your question was what was your intention for your yes, life yes, at that yes. point Who did to you make want it, to, be? to make it until i was 16 um take my ged and go to college um i, I was i was planning on doing that anyway and um i had wanted to go to the high school for performing arts in New York City. Um, I was accepted, mm -hmm. um, but my parents wouldn't let me go. So I figured if I could, like, do something. I'm, like I knew that was going to happen because you, you couldn't go there without parental. You know, even if you were emancipated, you still had to have a chaperone or whatever. There, you were no you, longer in the system to yeah. be able to go. Oh yeah, yeah, because I was dropped out and I'd already lost that. You know, you had to pretty much. With that school, you have to audition as a freshman and then be able to get, you don't just jump in at any time. You have to mm -hmm. start, it's a four-year school. So I was already late for that. So that didn't happen. So I thought, I'll just go to college, which I did, you know. I made it to 16. Um, uh, got a, a, different apartments with people and um, ended up living in loft spaces downtown, got involved in the art scene, um, the music scene. Um, did a lot of extra work. Um, uh, unfortunately, my, my drug addiction didn't end then, mm -hmm. you know, because I hadn't dealt with the traumas yet. And so I was still living in that world. You know, I still, I still was unaware of, of any, any, I mean, I don't even think we knew what PTSD was then. We didn't, we didn't have, have a name. Yeah. I didn't think we, I, I think in, in bipolar, was bipolar, it was, um, Manic depression. Man, well, yeah, it might have even been melancholia. <laughs> yeah. That, <laughs> you know, right? That's what I was yeah, yeah, I mean, it was a long time ago. And I remember the only thing that they gave me was lithium, which if when you live in Southern California, it's it's a drug that, or it's a mineral drug, whatever, you know, um, that is uh, photoreactive. And so you go toxic on it massively if you're in the sun. So here I'm running around in Southern California like, and, and you have to keep your blood work level on it. And I was never, you know, stable enough to do that. Mm -hmm. And so I was constantly going toxic on this lithium, you know, so I, I just, I, I decided back then, 
all drugs were bad, all psych drugs were bad, blah, 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 you know, da, 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 I'm never going to, you know, um, until my life got completely out of control and I had to actually be managed on some, um, some medications. I'm off of them all now. Um, once I got through, like, the, remember, it's rapid eye something therapy, um, I'll have to, maybe you can do the, uh, you can get that information mm-hmm. and find out what that's called because it's very important. I think it's, it's, it's one of the most wonderful, and it's scientific. Mm-hmm. That's what I like about it. It actually has a science, science-based thing behind it. It's very um, um, neurological. It's basically what it does is it rewires your brain. It leads new paths where it, it bypasses the trauma and you create new endings to your trauma mm-hmm. so that when you relive it, when you get to the point to where like, um, if, if, if I may jump back, like what I did in my therapy was when I was walking back to class and I had that envelope in my hand, I would, I would, we did this repeatedly over and over. And the whole time I'm watching this light go back and forth and, and thank goodness I hadn't lost my eyesight before this mm-hmm. therapy because had that happened, I wouldn't. You wouldn't be able to do that. Unfortunately, yeah. I mean, I don't know if it's possible, but um, yeah. It, it, so um, I changed the ending. Um, instead of pulling out the picture with my hair and me sleeping with a stranger, laying sitting next to me, like with a grimacing, scary look, it was the golden ticket from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Mm-hmm. And the song in my head, still to this day, when I think about that, I, I, I go right past that scary man. And he goes straight to that scene. I got a golden ticket. I got a golden ticket. <laughs> Which is great. Yes. You know, because it's like, I won. the, I won. I beat it. And so it was very symbolic for me. And, um, and, I, and I did. And from that point on, I was able to stay sober. Um, and I've got 25 years now. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is like, it went from bad to worse. Like, um, if there are, like, if, if anybody knows the band Allison Chains, I ended up, yes. <laughs> I ended up becoming Lane Staley's best friend. Um, and you can actually, like, one of the side projects, Mad Season, there's a song that I inspired on it. It was called Long Gone Day. I'm very proud of that. I mean, it's like, I finally did something that actually went worldwide and actually, like, changed pop culture. And I'm like, yeah, I did it. But, um, <laughs> Yeah, legacy. yeah. He actually thanks me on that on that record on the back. So, and he used my my rainbow name, which I love very much. You know, we were talking about the golden ticket. Oh yeah, yeah. And then you know that's how um, I uh, found my sobriety is through that. You know, but it had gotten to the point. I mean, like I took opiates. Uh, living with and hanging out with and like being around lane and that um there's there's two years that most people don't know about and i i've been offered money from rolling stone to talk about it i interviews right after his death um i was i even his mom nancy had had like contact like wanting to know what what was going you know mm-hmm. and i promised him that i wouldn't mm-hmm. i promised him that i would never sell him out um until after he i said i you know I said, eventually, you know, I probably am going to want, you know, but when you're gone, like as long as you're alive 
I'm never going to make money. You never have to worry about that. You're, I'm not one of those people. I'm not going to, I'm not here to take. I'm here to, to give whatever I can to like do the, you know, that's mm -hmm. always been who I, I am. Ultimately, deep down, you know, I think a lot of performers, a lot of people who, you know, that's all they want. They just want to, yeah. to give and to make people happy. You know, a lot of us come from um, very messed up families, you know, like we're, we're screwed up people and we just want to be loved and we want people to feel loved because we never did, you know, and I think that's, that's, you know, that was my goal. But um, yeah, I took it as far as you could go. I was, there was no getting well anymore. It was death or sickness. Mm -hmm. And so I had no choice. It was either, and it came down to that choice. Um, <clears throat> and I made the right choice. Uh, I just, I looked, I remember looking myself in the eyes and just looking at, and I was down to like 90 pounds. My organs were shutting down. I couldn't walk, I couldn't walk three feet without holding onto somebody or, you know, I literally was in bed for a year and a half, laying next to this, pizza-sized hole in the mattress where I kept dropping my cigarettes and it just kept burning and burning and burning. It was a big crater. It looked like, you know, like a, a giant meteor had hit my mattress and I didn't give a crap. Covered in scabies. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I mean, if you can imagine this. Pale, skinny. Um, I, I, I literally survived off um, Ben and Jerry's Chunky Monkey ice cream <laughs> because I thought it had all the food. The, the food groups, you know, had the dairy, had the nuts. That was the protein. <laughs> In my mind, it was like, okay, this I can live off this. And it was literally like a spoon a day. And so, um, what you know, you could literally see the fecal matter backed up through my skin. Mm -hmm. It was not only lumpy, but you could see the color of it through my translucent white skin that was marked with little highways of baby like highways so you were literally I mean, starving it was terrible it was absolutely i mean it was it was awful and i saw it like i, I don't know in a moment of clarity i just looked at myself and thought either you're going to do one more and it's going to be the last one or you're going to get help and i don't remember i don't remember making the decision i just remember like hanging up the phone and then I, re I remember, like, oh, I've got to call them back because I don't know where I'm going. But they found the bed for me, um, and I and I dropped Lane's name to get it, mm -hmm. you know. And I, um, and that's that's the one time I think I did use his name back then to like get anything or get anywhere. I never needed it. Like, pretty much, um, I was I was a mini celebrity in Seattle, just you know, on my own merit, and so. Um, uh, it was a miracle that there was a bed open. I ended up going there. It was a 60-day lockdown thing. Um, no medications. I went through the worst withdrawals you could ever imagine. Um, I mean, there was no nicotine, no caffeine, no sugar, um, nothing. No Suboxone, none of these things that they have out now. Like, mm -hmm. not even quantity. It was a complete nightmare. <laughs> and um, unlike women... Men don't forget that kind of pain. 
<laughs> you know, women have to be able to forget that pain or they, they would never have another child, right? <laughs> well, <laughs> well, it's a myth. Right. I mean, <laughs> but remember, well, we just I don't, I don't know anyway. how you, yeah, because this, I, I mean, it's what's kept me from going back. Yeah. And that's was... why I think it's important. I mean, we had, Maine and I had tried um, anesthesiology assisted opiate withdrawal. And it didn't work because you didn't suffer. And it wasn't long enough, you know, it's, it's the, the longest they could keep you under was three days, you know, and it was on whatever the drug that Michael Jackson ended up ODing on. Mm -hmm. um, it was on, that's what they used. It's the same thing that they give you if you go in for a colonoscopy or, you know, they, it, they put you out of the way, which, you know, because um, it's, it, it's, if you don't keep the drip going, the minute you stop it, you pretty much come out of it. It's just a, it's a light anesthesia. Mm -hmm. So, um, but anyway, um, I got through it and I stayed the full 60 days. And when I got out, I made sure that I was scheduled for an outpatient for up to a year. And it was through that outpatient that I found the right therapist mm -hmm. and um, ended up doing the, whatever, I, can, I wish I could remember it, but um, I don't remember the name of it. I want to call it rapid eye something, something, but I, that's not it. I, it's, there's letters for it and I can't remember what it is, like R B something. I, mm -hmm. I, I apologize for not knowing that, but yeah. Um, and that's what changed everything. Like, and then I started slowly turning back into my former self and, um, I was happy again and I became uh, I went back to college mm -hmm. you know I like I, I pretty much where I left off at 16 I picked up at 20 whatever you know mm -hmm. uh, 25 years ago so I'm 59 now I'm terrible at math I'm completely a, a right brain person there's no left at all mm -hmm. 24 <laughs> Yeah, mm -hmm. not that. Maybe. I'm bad at math, yeah, yeah, I'm terrible at math. Like, I'm like, what are these letters doing in with the numbers? <laughs> I never, I pretty much got through with basic math. But I didn't think I'd need it, you know, with the degrees that I was looking in, to go into um, the career path. So, um, yeah, that's um, that's my survival story. It's um, It's been a wild, wild um, I've, I've crammed a thousand lifetimes in this life, mm -hmm. and um, and I don't regret any of them because it made me who I am now, and I, I actually like myself now, even with the blindness and even with all the other things that that's new. Like it, it's just never a dull moment. There's always going to be something, no matter what it seems like. No matter what I get over, there's something else. There's going to be more. Like my motto is, I can't wait to see what's next. Mm -hmm. Awesome. You know, because it's like there is going to be something. I mean, and, and it's become an adventure. Like, like the this this blindness thing. I actually look at it like an adventure. Mm -hmm. I choose to look at it like that. I could I could choose to like, um, be devastated. People are like, I don't know how you're doing this. I don't know what. How are you, like, how do you even like get up? How do you keep going? I would be devastated. I would be in bed. I would be like. I would be, uh, yeah, and I, I just say, you know, well, 
that's a choice. Yeah. And I choose to enjoy this life because mm -hmm. I lost a big chunk of it, a big chunk where I wasn't enjoying anything. And now that I'm back, now that I've been, and it's been back, you know, I've, I've, I've cherished every moment and I live every moment like it's the last. And um, I remember at a rainbow gathering, I met Ram Das, who wrote the uh, classic, the very famous book, Be Here Now, mm -hmm. very, you know, big hippie book. Um, I met and hung out with Ram Das for a little while. And um, that's, that's kind of my philosophy is like, be here now. Now is all we have. Mm -hmm. This time, really, right now, is all we have. We're not guaranteed anything in the future. True. And the past should only be like learned from and not dwell dwells upon. Mm -hmm. You should take those, you know, and and take things that we know that will help others that we've learned to try to, you know, I mean everybody's got to go through their own thing. Everybody's got, you know, you can do all you can. But that's the reason why I wanted to do this podcast. Because um, it's been my goal, and I'm, and I'm working on it. And my goal for this new year is to actually write the book that I've been, I mean, I've had, I've started it, I've stopped it, I've been, I've been almost done. I've, but then there's always another chapter. There's always, a, what's next? And so I feel like I'm at a point now, because I'm at the age, uh, that it's, it, I can end it. Well, not end it, but I can bring it to a point where that is the whole, like, to keep the, the, the reader or the listener, in my case, I plan on doing probably just the audio mm -hmm. for the visually impaired. Um, but I may, I, I might want one just to have a physical copy because I've always, that's been, always been my dream. You know, I love the feeling of a good book. You know, I love to be able to turn the pages and even the smell of a book is just wonderful. But... Uh, yeah, I think that would be a great way to like, hey, you know, like, and there's this new adventure after living and surviving all of that and, and being at a point where I'm in a good space, this is what the universe brought me. Mm -hmm. And I think it's been the perfect um, life to get me to this point. And that's why I think that I'm going to be okay. Yep. And that's why I think I'm going to be able to inspire people, hopefully. Um, to keep going. Yes, that's very important. So, so that's that's me in a nutshell, and I mean nut. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're fairly normal compared to some people. Um, there are a lot of us who have had very similar past. You seem to have come out of it with a very good um, attitude and very good intention. Um, you and I talked about something a few minutes ago that was dear to your heart that you wanted to to work for um, helping the visual impaired in Oklahoma. Yes. Um, what is your vision there? Well, first of all, I want to um, I want to change the way the system is here. It's it's not working. Mm -hmm. I mean, the through the social services um, programs here, like the human. Um, whatever it's called, DHS, Department of Human Services, local rehab, very broken, the whole system all the way down. Um, Oklahoma ranks 
I mean, it did maybe like 49, but it's very, it's very the bottom for uh, uh, livability for people with visual impairments or blindness. It's, it's, there's no infrastructure. There's no, I mean, you don't, even in the big cities, Tulsa or Oklahoma City, you don't even get complete bus lines that have the talking buses or there's, there's not crosswalks that speak to you or, I mean, so it's, the infrastructure alone needs needs a lot of improvement mm-hmm. in the big cities now, um, and even in the university towns, like the big football towns, yeah. Norman, Oklahoma. I mean, there's not even sidewalks there that are. I mean, if, if which you, I would think that they would have to do that because the universities would have to be inclusive, right? You would think. You would think. I lived there a few years ago, and I actually got together with the city council, the mayor. And me and some other disabled people, people in wheelchairs, and um, we met them at Campus Corner, very famous like spot um, on the OU campus. It's where like all the night, the you know the bars are. It's, it's just right across from the what they call the oval, or no, it's the quad, or I don't know. It's it's, it's oval, but they call it the something, I don't know, which is really weird, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's just like this is the main thing in the in the in at, at you know at this university, but we met with them to show them um, just how difficult it was mm-hmm. for people with disabilities. Just you know, just to even get to classes and to get to um, student housing or to get to the you know just in that small little area, let alone the entire city of Norman, which that's when I discovered oh. It's about football. Um, there's the only sidewalks are, and the only decent roads, and the only places in the entire city that are lit with with signs are going in, going to the football stadium, stadium and going out. And um, so I realized, yeah, that's, that's you're barking up the wrong tree there. That's their focus. There, and at that time they were taking, um, I was I was taking art, uh, different art things there. Um, and I remember they were taking from the arts departments to give to the football team, like they needed mm-hmm. it. But so um, they were taking from proper education to give to the sports curriculums and different things. Like that's how they built that giant Megatron. Uh, you know, they've got the second largest in the world, mm-hmm. and it's a university football. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. An interesting thing about that, um, and then you know, we can end your what, but. A friend of mine worked for the 911 systems there, and when they were testing it out, it happened to be a very cloudy day. She said there were like 20,000 phone calls about Jesus is coming. <laughs> the end of the world is nigh. There are <laughs> the UFOs are invading because the lights were reflecting off of the clouds. And I remember it. It People was beautiful. Used to it. it was absolutely beautiful. Yeah. Um, but I knew it was what was happening, you know. Mm-hmm. But people in the surrounding areas, because it made the, I mean, it was like, from horizon to horizon, as far as you think. it was like, what happened? Walt Disney's back, you know, it's like Fantasia in the sky. It was really cool. But um, yeah, that was just a funny little point. I actually got locked into that stadium playing um, Pokemon Go. <laughs> That's funny. But yeah, I was, I was addicted to the Pokemon Go craze and um, ended up getting, because I was chasing a, a Pikachu. <laughs> <laughs> it was supposedly in there somewhere, mm-hmm. and they locked the gates, and we had to call security, and like campus police had to end up coming, and like 
um, it was a big to do. It made like the the paper, and it was funny. Like students like <laughs> locked in playing Pokemon Go, and then it became a big like, how safe is this game? You know, like people are walking into traffic, people are like falling in the manhole, like people are getting hit by cars because they're, you know, I don't know. If Would you try to play Pokemon Go today? Um, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. Never say never. Yeah. You know, my goal, is, way. my goal is to someday ride a motorcycle. Mm -hmm. You know, I was a huge, I, I loved They that. have self-driving cars. Why not self-driving motorcycles? Hey, I, I, somebody pointed out that there's a, a, a motorcycle now that you can't, you can't kick over. Mm -hmm. It's like you can kick it and the thing self, it stabilizes and goes back up. So, I mean, it's, I guess, got a, a gyroscope in it somehow, mm -hmm. like, like the uh, segways, but yeah, I mean, why not? Why not? You never know. I mean, <laughs> if it could have the same smart technology as, as a you know, a Google car or a, you know, one of those self-driving cars, a motorcycle, why not? It wouldn't do as much damage if it. You know. <laughs> I mean, it might to me or the the person riding it, but um, no, I've seen some wonderful ones now that have like little cabs that pop over them. And they're climate controlled inside. And but then, are you really riding the motorcycle? I'm serious. If 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 they have a cap, right, and you're not feeling the wind and the bugs and the sun, are you really riding? Motorcycle? Are you really then getting the same no, experience right. of riding the motorcycle? Not. You're right. You're you're in a people pod. <laughs> you're in a little Jetson like. Now, if only they could fly. No, I'm waiting for that too. Back to that question: If if they're flying, are you still? Is it? Really riding a motorcycle? <laughs> no, maybe not. I mean, all I can picture is those those Star Wars like hovering motorcycles that yep. that would be. I think maybe, maybe not. Maybe that should be Tesla's next move after wow. the electric cars. Yeah. Well, I think those are going motorcycles. <laughs> I think those are failing like miserably now. I think I think well, they just recalled them all. I think. They did. There was a big recall. Yeah, I thought so. Um, I haven't followed the Tesla vehicles very much. Mm. Um, but the thing that struck me was the, the recent Netflix film, um, Leave the World Behind. One of the, the doomsday incidents that they realized something was wrong was they were trying to head out of town, and all of a sudden, all of these... Tesla vehicles were all piled up, and that was what had blocked their road. And they were, it took them a minute to figure it out. And by the time they figured it out, there were more self controlled uh, Teslas coming at them, and they had to escape. And so, this is when at this point I'm going, okay, are self driven cars really a good way to go? Well, you know, okay. <laughs> I think if that's all there were, and you took, you took humans out of the equation. Mm hmm. I mean, I, I, have you seen the uh, the drones, like where they just toss another one up in the air and they all go into formation because they all know each other. They're, they communicate and they know like, I mean, there could be a hundred of them and you just keep tossing another one up there. And, and they, they just move, form they, a net. They move spaced out and they can't get in. They, 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 can't, they can't hit because mm -hmm. they're programmed not to. They can't, they have to stay within, you know, a foot and a half away from each other. No matter how many you put up there, they're just going to keep changing and getting into formation. Now, if all vehicles were like that, they would be safe. Yes. But if you put one driver But if in they're the mix, tied to the road, 
Right. And if you put one driver in the mix in there to drive with them, that's where it's going to go bad. Mm -hmm. One actual person who's got their own decisions because they're going to screw up everything. And yeah, I can see that the pile up, but 